Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Samuels, and this is another episode of Coffee and Liquidity, the podcast that sits nicely at the intersection of curiosity and business. The American dream can mean so many different things to so many different people. There's no one right answer. There's no one right path forward. But let's talk about ways to set yourself up and your family up for financial freedom in the future. All right. Great episode uh, in line for today. Actually, the first guest out of the uh, gate, as you can see down at the bottom here, I'm going to bring Mark on in a moment. But Mark Patton, who is the president of Hydrozonics, uh, if you're not familiar with Hydrozonics, you may not be in oil-filled water because it, it certainly is one of the preeminent names in the space. Um, I didn't actually realize until Mark and I were speaking a little bit before uh, you know the show today that uh, he's actually based in, in California, spends a bunch of time, mo- I guess most of his time uh, is probably accurate in the Permian Basin, but, but it has a home base in California. So, so he has a wide swath of knowledge across different basins. And so literally looking forward to, to getting into the conversation. And with that, going to go ahead and bring on Mark. Mark, how are we doing today? Great, Ben. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Appreciate you taking the time. No, no problem. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So I, I know I just gave you a, a brief intro, but um, if you would, before we get started, just uh, tell people um, who you are and uh, you know what uh, what you do. And then if you can follow that up with where they can find you if they want to learn more about what you're uh, what you got going on after the show. Oh, sure. I appreciate that, Ben. Uh, so I'm president of Hydrozonics. Uh, Hydrozonics has been around for almost 12 years now. Um, started off, you know, mostly in the Marsalis and then moved on to uh, you know, Hainesville, Fayetteville. We primarily use an ozone-based technology. A few years back, we we kind of shifted uh, and developed our own uh, ozone-based uh, technology, but we also looked at some complementary aeration and evaporation technologies, which we subsequently patented. So we have seven patents now, all in the produced water space, all in the oil field-related treatment. And uh, then we have about three more patents that are pending. Uh, and so we, we've, we've been exploring a lot of different things. We're really looking at that nexus between oil water management, uh, carbon capture, emission reduction, and uh, just the overall uh, reduction of carbon footprint. And that's really been kind of our, our focus for the last three, four years. Yeah, you know, um, so I'm, I'm sure you, uh, to, to a degree or maybe a healthy degree, you agree with what I said sort of on the, the front end of the show, that oil field, the water space within the oil field market doesn't seem to have gotten the attention that it's needed or, or has deserved in the past. But that seems to be changing, uh, you know, with Hydrozonics being in business over the last 12 years. Can you sort of give me some uh, some perspective on what you have seen in those last 12 years? You know, wh- where was this market and, and sort of what were you looking at at the, you know, at the first iteration? of hydrozonics and kind of give us some history you know over the last decade plus so so when you you look at really um what the goals were right you know what does recycled water mean how do you get to a point of saying i'm my recycled water is good enough and and it started off with i'm just going to touch it with an oxidizer and that's it and i'm off and running um what people refer to on the fly treatment then later on, people started looking at, well, wait, wait a second, maybe I'll, I'll get some TDS removal and maybe I'll you know, do a little bit of flock and drop and get more solids, clean up this water even more extensively. And then as they did that, costs got higher and higher and higher. And, and then the oil field started uh, to see the first downturn and everybody said, no, no, we need prices cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And more people than not agreed that I really don't need uh, super clean water to recycle. That and the combination of frac fluids becoming more salt tolerant 
meant that I can re recycle more produced water. I don't have to affect, uh, worry about the effect it's going to have on my completion fluid, um, but I don't need it to be pristine quality either. And, and so we've seen that transition, right? Where, where, you know, just need a touch with an oxidizer to I need to include a bunch of other treatment processes, oil water separation, solids control, everything in between to, you know, I'm just going to do touch it with an oxidizer, maybe do some solid settling. And, and there's some debate there. There's some people that want more solids control than others. I'm one of those that believe that you don't need it uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I, I always tell people, you know, there's a couple key things there. Once you've gone through your gathering system, if you have one and you have gun barrels, you're probably going to see your TSS under 300, probably under 200. A dust storm is going to take clean water and raise it. They raise the TSS. I'm sorry if I said TDS earlier, uh, the TSS up to like three, 400 PPM. And mm -hmm. so now you're back to where you started after you removed all these solids. Then your final step is you're, you're developing a prompt transport mechanism, right? Your water is used to move sand basically. And sand has fines in it. And when you look at a hundred mesh screen and you just take the fines left in your fluid, um, it's 10 to 20% fines. And, and if you look at normal propane concentrations, that's like seven to 15,000 PPM of TSS now that you've added to your water. So when people start talking about, I need to get my TSS under 50, um, you know, I, I, I kind of look at that and say, I, I think that's a standard that water treatment companies develop to sell you that service, but your end product doesn't need it. Your end product is going to mask any difference between a settled, you know, hundred less than 100 PPM TSS, total suspended solids versus a more pristine, say less than 50 uh, PPM TSS because of all the profit fines. So, you know, we, we kind of push that. And, and that's, I think, the big difference we see, we see some treatment systems that are more geared toward more solids removal and others that aren't. Um, and we're seeing, you know, we think we think with low cost, low carbon footprint, adding these other steps, add energy, add chemicals. And so, you know, you have to really start looking at how do you justify that. The other big change is the rise of the midstream, right? So the midstream have changed um, for the better how how things uh can be how oil filled water can be managed. So a operator, for example, may have to on his own look and justify the cost of recycling, but you know, a midstream can put in a regional recycle facility that meets the needs of three or four different operators. And so his ability to aggregate water and scale is so much larger than than an operator's that he can get his costs down, offer those savings onto them. And and so I think that's that's been the other big change. No, I think that, uh, and I want to talk a lot about that. Before we dig in, though, um, let's just make sure that everybody that may be listening that may not be in the space or, heck, maybe in oil and gas, but is, again, not familiar with what we're talking about. Uh, can you uh, give us some quick definitions of, uh, you said TDS, TSS, and PPM, just to make sure that we're all on okay. the same page? So, so uh, TSS are total suspended solids. Uh, TDS are total dissolved solids. So, and, and there's a difference. So, like, if I put salt in a water and they dissolve it, it's total dissolved solids. It, it's it's solubilized in the water. You don't see the solids anymore. Any floating solids and things that you see in the water are usually total suspended solids. So um, those are the two differences. When I said PPM, that's a parts per million. Um, and it's basically a, a concentration level of, of measurement for water. 
Um, you know, it can be milligrams per liter. You may hear a lot of people say uh, milligrams per liter and PPM are, are kind of interchangeably, uh, you know, one's a mass percent, the other one's, a, you know, not a mass percent concentration, but, but, you know, they're used pretty much interchangeably. So do you, that do you that. find that? Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Uh, do you find that there are any sort of industry standards, maybe basin specific? Cause I bet, I bet it's pretty regional, but uh, in regards to, the spec for the water needing to uh, so once you clean the water and, and you're sending the water back to the frack or doing something with it after the treatment, are there any sort of standard levels of TSS or TDS that that are relatively accepted across the board that uh, you need to be under, or is it very specific to you know the the operator is is it regional? Give me some perspective on that. Yeah, it, it's really not regional. It's really specific to the operator. So. Um, Today, you have very tolerant friction reducers, uh, salt-tolerant friction reducers. So seeing somebody recycle 100% produced water that may be up to 190,000 ppm, 200,000 ppm total dissolved solids uh, is not unusual. Um, And then you go to the the Eagleford and you may have 10 to 30,000 ppm total dissolved solids, much lower, uh, less problematic, but a whole lot less water. So, you know, the... The levels, the natural levels you see in the water can change from region to region, but we find that within a region, if you just pick, you, you can pick two operators right next door to each other, and they have completely different uh, total suspended solids goals. Um, and the sad thing is when you ask them where it originated, they usually don't know. They, they say, well, I inherited this, and this is what the level is going to be, and and." Uh, you know, so we like to get back to the science of, okay, but why is that your goal? And, and does it give you better producing wells? Does it cause less formation damage? What are the things that you're evaluating? And and that's where we think the con- the conversation should stay there. You know, uh, think, when people talk about turbidity and clarity of the water, that's a aesthetic standard. We're, right. we're not making right. drinking water. We're carrying, we're making something to carry sand. So, you know, mm-hmm. let's... Let's take some of these aesthetic standards out of the equation, at least the way we look at it. All right. Thanks for listening to the show. Wanted to take a quick break and talk about one of our sponsors. As always, you can learn more information about our sponsors on the affiliate partners page on alderonventures.com. That is A-L-D-E-R-A-A-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S.com, alderonventures.com, Layla Beds. They didn't want to just perfect the way you buy a mattress, wanted to perfect the mattress itself as well. As we all know, mattresses are incredibly important. Getting a good night's sleep could not be more impactful to your day-to-day business, day-to-day life, family, friends, etc. They believe it's a place to rest, rejuvenate, and recharge both your body and your mind. And it's a battery recharger and launching pad for your best awake self. And you can't be the best awake self, best mom or bocce player, listener, boot camper, friend, boss without the best sleep and the best sleep unlocks the whole you the better you the you that's balanced ambitious present so go check it out alderonventures.com backslash affiliate dash partners layla beds they have some fantastic specials going on right now two hundred dollars off a mattress free pillows and more check it out and now back to the show 
Is, is some of what you've seen or some of what you're talking about um, in, in regards to the operators, I mean, is, is that push or, or that change, I should say, that shift born out of you know, that we've seen as of recent, there's been a massive shift back towards slick water fracking? Uh, you know, is, is it really, is it condi- uh, condition, contingent on the operator's process of what they're putting down whole? Or is it more from what's coming, like, is it, I guess the better question is, is it, are you talking about the decision-making on like the input or the output of the water? Is this for, you know, Hey, we need, you know, 60 million barrels for a frack. We need to look at, we need it to look like this, or, or is that more on the, this is what we're getting out of the ground. Yeah. I understand. So, so I think, I mean, two different issues, but really it's always been an issue of um, one is how much water do I have available? Can I aggregate enough water? to do 100% produce water. A lot of times for people, they just can't. They can't get it in the right spot quick enough, don't have enough storage. And, and then the other was, you know, what you mentioned. So with crosslink gels, there is a definite issue with high salinity uh, waters. Um, they, they tend to degrade the gels and you lose your viscosity. Uh, you lose your prop and holding capacity. Um, so it, it, there was always a limit. So when you were talking crosslink gels, at least conventional borate crosslinkers, you were limited to about 30, 40% produced water in the Permian. When you switch to friction reducer only and you stop doing the crosslink gels, um, you stop seeing that. Um, the other thing that, you know, shocked me, I, I was always, um, and, and I, I think, I don't know if you've heard of John Ely. He was the first that mm-hmm. told me that people are crazy for doing crosslink gels. But if you've ever seen a well flow back, we would see really strange crosslinks. So some of the existing stuff in the formation would cause these these crosslinks, and you would get chunks of gel coming out in your flow back that you couldn't break. Basically, I mean, they were just formed these new you know bonds that that just made the gel un- un- unbreakable. And so you start to ask yourself, man, if I'm having this float in my flow back, what's stuck in my formation? And so I, I think, you know, um, for a lot of reasons, going to friction reducer, not just being cheaper, uh, I think for a lot of people made more sense. And and, uh, and it also meant that I didn't have this limit uh, with salt, salt content and the salt degrading my gel anymore. So going to friction reducers, man, you know, I can I can now go to 100 percent produce water fracks and not worry about it. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I mean, we know we know people today that don't treat their water at all and handle it all at the frack. Yep. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's some challenges there that you'll never overcome. Um, you know, like with the biocides, you know, do you, you're, you're putting in a biocide that's bacteria levels are fluctuating, but you're putting your biocide in a constant dose rate. So you're just cr- crossing your fingers and hoping that you're giving it enough biocide to kill. And you don't know that you killed it or not until after the well's flowing back um, because you, there's no real time method for the effectiveness of biocide, they don't work quickly. They work slowly. It's like a poison, takes time for it to work. Uh, and there's a lot of data that, that um, there's some recent uh, report that um, I just saw um, that um, came out of uh, uh, University of Texas. I'm trying to remember the guy who, uh, uh, Zach Hildebrand. So Zach okay. Hildebrand worked on a study where uh, bacteria the permeability of the cell changed in high salinity water. It, it reduced the permeability. So its ability, it protected itself, but it also meant that biocides now couldn't be absorbed as much. And there's been studies where they say, hmm, for some reason in produced water, biocides aren't as effective. 
Uh, and then there's interactions between FRs and biocides. So when you look at all those things, you say, gee, I'm spending a lot of money on biocide at the blender. Maybe it's not working. We, we think killing it upstream with an oxidizer, you can verify it safer. We, we think for all those reasons, that's the better way to go. But the reason I bring that up is that frac fluids have become so much more tolerant of produced water. It's paved the way for people to use as much produced water as they can on their fracks. And, and I, I really think that's what that should be everybody's goal. We used to say there was twice as much produced water generated than was needed to supply all completion activity. With completion activity being a lot lower, I was looking at the latest numbers, it's three times as much produced water as we need to satisfy all our completion activity. So, you know, I know there's logistic challenges, but I, I really think the industry's challenge should be don't use any fresh or brackish water. And, and that's a really good powerful ESG goal. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so th- there was a lot there. I'm going to try to unpack that uh, a little bit. So um, first, you, uh, you mentioned uh, Zach Hildebrand, and I think he talked a bunch about the uh, permeability that you were talking about in the cells uh, at PWS. He, he gave a keynote on day one. Yeah. I think he talked talked about that. And so, so uh, uh, for those that were registered for PWS but didn't get a chance to either hear that talk or attend, it is still actually live on the Whova app, so you can go back and listen to it. One of the things that, that I wanted to make sure to get your opinion on, Mark, is, and you sort of touched on it there, and I'm curious, you know, one of the things that, that I hear all the time from groups, uh, you know, from water treatment groups out there is something along the lines of, yeah, we've got a technology that can treat any type of water, any, you know, any, uh, any, sorry, any type of water to any spec that, that is necessary. We use no chemistry. This is a very easy, like just, you know, doesn't matter what the water looks like. Doesn't matter what you want the water to, to look like at the end. We, we, you know, we've got it in the bag. Um, I know enough to know that that, you know, I don't want to put anybody on blast, but that that's not that's not factually yeah. accurate, and it can't be. Um, can't and so I'm curious. I, yeah, I'm curious um, what your sort of takeaway from that is, and, and what I mean by that is it it seems like the industry has sort of adopted this, like you know, the lowest common denominator idiot tech is is the way to go. And I think the people that are more quote unquote in the know, like yourself, understand that there's a lot more nuance there. And so, what are some of the barriers to entry. Let's put it, let me ask you that way. What are some of the barriers to entry to the oil field water treatment market that you have identified uh, that, that sort of, you know, devalue that, uh, you know, that proposition of, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter what water, it doesn't matter what basin, we can do this internationally, et cetera. And, and, and we, uh, we have a one size fits all solution. Yeah. And so I think, you know, there's, there's been a downside to that. So, so there's a, what I'll call the snake oil salesman, you know, approach to selling water uh, treatment that has permeated our industry. I mean, I've seen them everywhere. And um, the problem is that you have a bit of a technology acceptance, technology avoidance issue with a lot of operators. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they need to really vet and see. Um, and, and even us, you know, we're using ozone. And we've actually said, you know, people say, oh, gee, does ozone work? Uh, you know, and, and I'm like, you're like, well, it's been around for 100 years and they've been using it for water treatment 100 years. I think you're okay with it. Um, and, uh, and so there is this aspect of, you know, I don't want to try new things. I don't want to be anybody's guinea pig. And there are some, some um, operators out there that, that challenge that you know, norm. They're, they're out there doing pilots and they're testing things. But in today's environment, there's a lot less of that going on. Um, and so I think, you know, um, 
it's it's the first step is getting the acceptance and you know even us when we started 12 years ago we we're bringing this brand new ozone system that was designed for produced water uh, that hadn't really been used anywhere so so it took us a few years just to get people to accept it and then the challenge then was i was like this is way too expensive you need to design something that's simpler easier you know keep some of the Advantages we like ozone, but reduces the cost and makes it more uh, user friendly. So I, I think you know that that's where you know um, unfortunately you got all these snake oil salesmen coming into the industry, and it's kind of clouded the water a little bit. It's made it a little bit more difficult for people to see um, what it is they want. And so you know we see um, a very discriminating operator, which we like. I mean, you know, because it because it forces you to acknowledge with data and, and, and experience we've done over 3000 fracks we've done, you know, and be able to show them that data and show them that. And they say, Oh, gee, okay, you, we, we can validate you. And then, and then the snake oil guys, they can't do that. Right. Um, right. But, but there is, you know, one of the things that we saw is originally people were taking municipal water treatment technology and dumping them in the oil field, just as if we treat that water, we can treat this water. And if you can, it, it, the number of times, I've talked to equipment manufacturers about uh, produced water and they sit there and say, what is that stuff? We can't treat that. Don't even you, you void our warranty the day you put that in, (laughs) you put that in our, in our system. We've seen that from, from probes to everything else where they say, we don't want our equipment in that environment. So, you know, you have to, um, um, you have to definitely, Take that in consideration. The other is applying offshore water management techniques to onshore, which again, different animal, different goals, different requirements. Uh, and so, you know, it, it really, it, there really needed to be a, a, a customization of, of what the approach is. And I, we're seeing that today, but it took a while to get there. But um, yeah, yeah, Mason, I, I pun intended when I said cloud of the water. <laughs> yeah, you know, one of the, one of the more, just kind of mind-blowing statistics. This is a very minor conversation with a buddy that I had a few weeks ago. Um, he he is primarily, if not exclusively, focused offshore. Uh, they just had a, a new well come on come online, and I, I happened to be talking to him the the first day of IP, and he was just in a horrible mood because because it wasn't producing or it wasn't producing what they wanted it to. And I so I was like, you know, tell me, like, what, what's what was the IP? And he goes, well, you know, we're I think he said we're eighteen hours into the first day, and we're at twenty one thousand barrels. And I'm like, and 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 that's got you like. And he, I mean, he was pissed. He he was like kind of like shaking his boots. And I was like, that's got you to the point. And, and I, I just kind of like sat back and I, and I, to your point, it, that was sort of crystallized to me that you hear about like onshore, offshore. And it's like, you know, there's a couple letters off and it's the same industry. And you think that there's probably some tangential linkage. And I mean, it's, it's a whole different ballgame, you know, across the board, um, w- which I find fascinating. And I, I don't know about yourself, but I've actually never had the experience. I've never had any experience in offshore operations. Have you? No, no, we've we've uh, we've stayed away from that. I actually, we're being asked about it um, more and more lately. Um, hmm. One of the advantages that we've come up with ozone is we've been able to automate it to the point where um, we don't need uh, an operator on site. And so we've been approached by people saying, "Wait, you know, we do use oxidizers for for you know bacteria control offshore, but we have to bring chemical totes, and it gets really expensive, you know, taking that out to an offshore platform." 
in your system, you know, you just have to do routine maintenance on it, but you don't have any raw materials. It's just electricity and air. Um, again, moisture, moisture content in, in offshore air, we have to do some dehumidification. Um, but that's, you know, that's an easy step that you add to our process. So it's something we're looking at, uh, but we don't have any experience offshore. So, you know, and, and we stay in our lane. I mean, we, we, we don't, we don't want to try to presume that, you know, we're going to be all things to all people. Um, so, you know, we're slowly looking at other markets. Uh, you know, we've had people ask us about um, groundwater remediation and BTEX remediation. We've done a lot of studies there. Um, I, in fact, that's that's becoming a more important topic in, in produced water. I don't know if you heard people bring up benzene or not. Um, but Only tangentially in conversation. Talk to me about that. What, what's the, what's so, the conversation? So if you look at um, hazardous waste criteria, now, now we, we enjoy, um, thanks to Senator Benson many, many years ago, I think, I think in like the late 80s, um, got a expiration and production waste exclusion. So expiration and production waste, which includes produced water, is excluded from hazardous waste regulations. And for the longest time, the belief was that there aren't anything there's nothing in produced water that would require to be regulated as hazardous anyway, so it's not a concern. Um, trying to remember when they added benzene, but it was like probably in the late 90s, um, maybe early 2000s, they added benzene uh, to hazardous waste criteria at 0.5 parts per million. Um, we've tested a lot of raw produced water and we're seeing levels as high as two parts per million. So we're like, whoa. So if, if we were to ever lose this exclusion, this stuff would become a hazardous waste and couldn't go to a disposal well. And that would make fundamentally change the industry. I mean, can you imagine not going to class two disposal wells and having to go to class one? And you could probably count um, the number of class one wells in the country on two hands and the, the commercial ones on one hand. So you start to say, wow, you know, that would change the industry. Now, again, we have this as an exemption. We don't worry about it. Um, one of the new uh, green energy um, act that's going through, it's in committee right now, federally, is calling for the removal of that exemption. Hmm. And periodically, the EPA reviews every five, six years uh, the status of these exemptions. There's another one for the mining industry uh, called the Bevel Amendment that Senator Bevel you know, uh, introduced around the same time that Senator Lloyd Benson introduced the exploration production one. But um, so, you know, if, the, if those exemptions ever changed uh, and got removed, it would change how we operate as an industry tremendously. So we wanted to find out is um, ozone and hydrogen peroxide are probably the two oxidizers that, that work well at degrading benzene. So in a normal recycling operation, are we seeing any benzene reg, de, uh, degradation? And we've actually tested that and we found about 60% benzene degradation. So we're like, hey, for a lot of this water, we would get it below the regulatory limit uh, and we can do combinations of adding more ozone or doing something called peroxone where you add a little hydrogen peroxide right after your ozone. Um, and so there's some combinations of that that you could get down to that target pretty easily and never have to worry about that anymore. So we, we've been looking at that, but it's one of those things that, you know, um, under previous administrations, I would never expect or never think that the exemption would go away. And like I said, it's been around since the late 80s. Mm -hmm. um, but under this administration, I don't know that I, you know, logic no longer prevails. So 
<laughs> Who, who's to say what might happen? Um, yeah. But but we've seen more and more, more. We were using a local lab, and they used to tell us, "You're the only only company that asks us for benzene testing." And I said, "Really?" And then about a month ago, uh, they said, "Hey, man, we have a backlog of benzene samples. Everybody in town all of a sudden is asking us about benzene." So uh, I, I think people are paying attention to that. Whether it means anything yet, we don't know. So. Um- I'm curious what your perspective on some of the recent regulation is. I I know that we have, uh, so there's the New Mexico Produced Water Council. Uh, There's now what the Texas Water, Produced Water Management Council. There's a number of others. I'm going to mess up the acronyms, but there's a number of these groups that are statewide. Um, So I know that the New Mexico one was actually uh, working in tandem with the EPA and was part of the draft legislation that came out. If I have my timeline right in June, I believe. Uh, And then there was some other draft legislation that just came out two or three weeks ago. I mean, I think it was relatively, uh, relatively recent that was uh, kind of tied to some of those findings. They have that massive pilot program out in New Mexico. From your seat, what have you seen in terms of regulations? Is that a good thing? Is that not, you know, is that going to help the industry uh, and the health of the water industry, you know, the water within the oil field uh, or not? And then coupling with that, uh, uh, what do you, what are your takeaways from sort of the the desired result from that legislation. What's the purpose of all of that? What are we trying to get to? Yeah. So, so the New Mexico Produced Water Research Consortium. Thank you. Um, we're we're, <laughs> that, we're that, members, that. and we actually have a grant to do some work for them. And um, you know, I, I think a lot of times when you look at some of those research consortiums, you you kind of ask yourself, well, you know, where are they going? What is this? What's really going to happen? Is this total waste? I can tell you that what Mike Hightower doing doing is a very strategic and has very specific goals in mind. And there's some operators that are very, very involved in that. So one of the um, obstacles and, and, and what they did, which is kind of unique, I think I would be afraid to do this. So I, I you know, kudos for them for having the uh, cojones for doing it. I, I excuse my language, but but they invited the environmental groups to be part of their consortium. And said, we want your input too. You're a stakeholder. What do you have to say? And so one of the common objections is, I don't want to allow produced water to be discharged outside of the oil field because I don't know what's in it. And as long as I don't know what's in it, I don't want it to be used for ag reuse or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's two parts to that argument, you know, because because I've heard that argument brought up and I've, I've challenged uh, people at some of the environmental groups and confronted them and said, why don't you impose that same standard on municipal water or any other discharge of water? Cause you don't, I mean, right. we're, we're learning about PFAS and pharmaceuticals and wastewater and still don't have any control measures for that. We're continuing to discharge it. So we don't know everything that's in all the water we discharge anyway. So why is that, you know, uh, your concern? The second part of that is, so you identify things that are in the water, but you don't have a test method for it. So now we wait another 10, 20 years for a test method to be developed. Well, what what Mike Hightower and the New Mexico Produced Water Research Consortium is they went through this exercise of identifying using frac focus and other operators data, all the constituents that could possibly be in produced water, and then went through the exercise of developing all of the test methods they need to. And then the default, which is used in every other industry, is a toxicity standard. So a lot of industries, when you really don't know everything that's there, they'll do like what they call a fish bioassay. So you put 
some of that water in a tank with fish and you see if the fish die or not. And, uh, and so they, there's alternative uh, test methods and toxicity tests that they're using. So they're, they're answering that question for those, those groups, environmental groups, what's in the water and what's a safe level. And, and I think that's important because if they get them to accept that and they get New Mexico, which it sounds like everybody's on board, then they're going to approve uh, discharge outside of the oil field. And, and I think for our industry, that is so critically important because if we can become a producer of energy and a producer of water, then you start to ask yourself, how are we not on the top rung of the ladder from an ESG perspective? How are we not, if we're providing cheap energy and clean water, both of those things, then then don't you check all the ESG boxes? Don't you just elevate the the uh, ESG profile of the whole industry? So I, I think that's where that's where it's important. So the work the consortium doing is, is actually really important. I, I really applaud them. Uh, the area, one of the areas we're going to explore in a grant is byproduct formation. So, but before, I'm sorry, before, go ahead. Before, yeah, no, I, I want to ask a question about that, so I don't want to get uh, too too far uh, down the path. So, do you? Th- I mean, do you think it is a realistic goal? I, I know that some of the a lot of the conversation in the market today seems to be. I'm going to whitewash that. I'm going to give you a very macro perspective of this. Um, essentially, you know, that uh, you know that basically, you know, running oilfield water is a losing endeavor. If you run a business, you're going to lose money. Uh, the the operators don't have the financial incentive to actually want to solve the problem, uh, irrespective of what you said about the the water imbalance, which is absolutely true. Um, I mean, do you, so given sort of the Lack of liquidity for R and D and and sort of new ventures in the oil field in general. Uh, given the the relatively low profit margins that the oil field water space, especially in the Permian seas, do you think it's realistic that the market? Let's let's talk about the let's talk about Texas because I think it gets complicated when you start talking about like Pennsylvania and the Northeast and and other places. Texas, talking about Texas, do you think it's realistic that we will get to a place where there is a substantive amount of the produced water being truly repurposed for either ag use or other? We probably, I mean, I don't know if we're going to get to drinking water, but do you think that there's a realistic shot that we're going to be able to bring that water imbalance into equilibrium through some of this? And not just technologically, but actually have the desire within the industry to do that? Right. So so, um, if you looked at the Eagle Ferd, technologically we have the technology to do it today that water is is mm-hmm. in some cases lower salinity than seawater so you can desalinate it and do it unfortunately in the eagleford nobody's that hungry for water so there, the need for water isn't there and you go to the permian technologically it's a lot more difficult but but when you have as much flare gas that's available and you look at things like thermal distillation and energy the the, the question isn't can I desalinate water in, in the oil field, uh, in, in the Permian? You can, but then the cost is high. But part of the cost being high is the energy cost. And so if I can offset that with flare gas, can I get there? Um, I, I think you can. Um, and then there's this idea of, well, yeah, when, when you're talking about 25 to 35 cents for my disposal wells and even cheaper to recycle, why would I? Well, but but then there's a segment of your water that's going to third party disposal and you're paying a dollar, a dollar fifty for that. So if you just start with that water and you say, I'm just going to design a smaller capacity as my entry point, I think then you can start building scale over time. Now, here's 
why I think as much as I say that it won't happen in Texas is that the power of the landowner in Texas is king. You know, just like you know, saying cash is king. Well, the power of the landowner in Texas is king. And there are too many landowners that make too much money selling water to operators. And they're not going to want to see that go away. And just like, you know, in, in New Mexico, in their um, uh, act, they allowed for operators to cancel water purchase agreements uh, if they were going to recycle. That's great. That's a great move. But it's really easy to do that when 70, 80 percent of the land's owned by the government. <laughs> so you don't have a lot of private land ownership and nobody to make a big fuss about that. You try to do that in in uh, Texas, where it's the opposite. It's almost all privately owned. Sorry, it, it just they're not gonna they're not gonna allow it. You know, it's interesting that, that you say it that way. Uh, you know, uh, the, the way that you presented that sort of uh, you know what, what came to mind is so in the in your you're you're talking about a massive imbalance in terms of so if you look at look at the acres that source documentary moans. We own a couple thousand acres up in northeastern Martin County for I don't know a twenty mile radius around us. All those guys have made money on for the last 60 years is farming cotton or hay or whatever, right? In the last decade, maybe five years, maybe even three years, they've made exponentially more in water. And now it's like, hey, we're, we're going to take that re, you know, that out asset away from you. Tough conversation. Uh, parking that for a second, though, I think the interesting part that I – I don't know enough about the basin to really postulate why this, you know, why it is this way. But, you know, so you talk about Texas at those price deltas, but then you go up to like a place like Ohio or Pennsylvania and they're paying 16, 20, 25 dollars per barrel for disposal. How in the world are they still doing that when they can plug like when they can plug in something like a hydrozonics or, or, or you know, or something else that completely removes removes that cost item from the balance sheet. I, I don't I haven't been able to figure out or understand what the what the barriers to entry to that market are to provide these solutions. Or am I not thinking about that the right way? No, well so so Marcellus is no you know unique. And you're right. Very high prices for disposal. Um and it's not that you can't put a disposal well in the Marsalis and Pennsylvania. People have tried. It's just the geology. You're going to have like a 500 barrel a day disposal well. It's not going to do you any good. Um, so that's why you've seen them move Ohio and West Virginia and other places. Um, so the cost is really high. Um, you don't produce a much, as much water in a Marsalis well as you do in other places. And the decline is, is significant. So you, mm -hmm. you, the amount of water decline is very quick and rapid. So there's just not as much water. Um, but that being said, most of the major producers are almost recycling all of their water when they're completing wells. And the problem is when they're not completing wells and they're sending a topside disposal. Um, and they seem to be making uh, a lot more. And, and it's the first place, um, I used to laugh about this, but um, you know, it, you, you talk about the need for solids control. Now, you know, we're talking gas wells versus oil wells, but um, we actually saw them dumping drilling mud into their produced water and using that as their completion fluid. And I was like, wait, wait, okay. I, I know I'm against doing a lot of solids control, but this is like, you're treating your 
you're cracked like a disposal well. What are you doing here? And we talked one operator into doing a uh, core flow test. And the core flow results were like, you can't use this water for completions. It will never work. This is your, you got no regain permeability. This is horrible. And they said, you know, Mark, I, I, I appreciate you doing that. And that's great. But we've been doing it like this for a year. And we haven't seen any decline in production. And I went, wow. So they took it a step further. So they had upstream ASTs where they're storing water. And unfortunately, when they stored water, um, they set a lot of solids because the water is sitting there. And, and selling solids in the Marcellus is different than selling solids in other places because they're a lot more norm. So once you empty your tank and you got these solids left over, you concentrated some of the norm to the point where you might have a hard time getting rid of it. And it wasn't the cost of the norm. It was being um, having to publicly report that you generated norm and had to get rid of it scared people so bad that they would rather keep it in suspension and slurry so it's not concentrated. And so they actually talked to us about mixing and slurrying the water in the AST so they could send it to the frack. So they were, they were actually figuring out ways to throw more solids in, in their, their use reuse program. So you know, it, it's all kind of humorous. I don't think you could get away with that in the Permian. You would run into some issues with formation damage and the like. But for whatever reason, they did it there. So, so that's that's part of the the difference there in the in the Marsalis. Uh, they do recycle. It just you know the gas markets are a lot more volatile. So the 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 uh, but they must make enough money during the periods that they're you know selling gas that it offsets the high cost to produce water. But again it's not in the same volumes as you see in the Permian Basin. Yeah, hopefully they're not a client of yours. If they are, we can cut this part of the show after post-production. <laughs> but uh, you're talking norms northeast. Guys, um, don't don't be good night midstream. Don't do not do it. You'll get caught. Um, I, won't, I won't say anymore. I don't want to get myself in trouble. Uh, <laughs> but, oh, no, uh, we, there's, there's been facilities up there fine for, you know, I don't think they were doing it purposely, but they were concentrating solids and weren't bothering to test. And, uh, and, you know, they were sending oh. off and got caught. Oh, no, I mean, no, well, yeah, 12 second high level. Uh, Goodnight got caught trucking the norms across state lines into, I think he was, I think they took it all the way into Idaho. They took it a long way and, yeah. and then dumped, and then dumped it. Uh, don't, don't do things like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, I know we're, we're running um, up against the time here. So, so I want to um, get to a, ask a couple other questions. All right. Thanks for listening to the show. Really appreciate the support. Guys, if you're from West Texas or another area in the country that doesn't have access to high quality, fresh fish on a daily basis, you know the struggle of, you know, you just want a good quality cut of salmon, halibut, cod, maybe some lobster, shrimp, calamari, scallops, something, but you just can't find it at the supermarket. Guys, Sizzlefish is the answer. Mission is simple. They want you to eat well and live better. It makes a huge difference. They have a fantastic website. It's super easy to buy, subscribe, get discounts, etc. Check it out. AlderOnVentures.com backslash affiliate dash partners and scroll to the link for Sizzlefish. I'm going to go ahead and drop the link in the show notes for you guys. Check it out. Let me know what you think. And with that, let's get you back into the show. Thanks, guys. One of the things I'm curious to, to hear your perspective on, and, and we talked about it a little bit, but uh, as I alluded to earlier in the show, the oil the oil market in general, like the, the upstream market, has I hesitate to say been unbanked, but 
debanked to a healthy degree. I mean, there's substantively less money available for new drill or new operations, et cetera. You know, th- th- it's very, very much sort of a maintain operation structure. Uh, th- there's not a lot of extra liquidity. Do you see that in addition to hurting the upstream market? Is that going to be a barrier to, you know, sort of solving some of these problems on the produce water side? And going back to this focus of, I mean, if really the focus is to drive profit, is the is the fixing the water problem, quote unquote, is that enough of a moneymaker for the majors, for the publics to really care enough to 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 fix it? And the reason I say that is because obviously the majors and the publics have a grave need to service the ESG angle of this whole process. But if you're a public, if you're a major at the end of the day, what matters is your share price, right? And so if, yeah. if you're going to if you're going to shoot yourself in the foot by trying to solve the problem, is it even worth it? Yeah. So so most operators will tell you their internal costs at their disposal wells are about 25 to 35 cents a barrel, somewhere in that range. Um, some as high as 45 cents. Um, you can recycle your produced water for less than that. And so there's an economic benefit and always will be um, to be able to do that. Then you have the cost of your water. And if you're having to purchase any water, then then the economic benefit's just even greater. Um, Big difference is when you're buying a recycled facility and building it, constructing it in-house, of course, your, your cost is a lot lower. What we see the transition because of a lot less capital in the market, like you mentioned, is that they're going to third-party vendors, which is increasing their cost uh, because they're they're you know uh, doing a third party instead of buying the system themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, companies like us, you know, we had a transition from we thought the market was going to just buy equipment, and so we set up our systems to make them for sale. And now we're starting to see we have to increase our rental inventory because more people are looking to rent systems. Um, but, um, you know, th- that's where, you know, the third party, the, the economic challenge is a little bit there. But like I said, and in that 25 to 45 cent a barrel, if you can't recycle for cheaper than that, then you're doing something wrong. Um, and then and then you have the, the issue of water. So I think the incentive is going to be there. It's always going to be there. I think the biggest impediment to recycling are, are two reasons, and it's two reasons I think you see third party instead of infrastructure being built in recycled facilities, is that everybody's completion schedule is a little erratic. And so if you can't guarantee a solid completion schedule, how do you get a return on investment on your recycled facility? So so I think you know for the, for the short term, we're going to see third party sales more often than not. Um, but the other, the bigger impediment is will landowners... Uh, allow it you know there's landowners that because they want to sell water will restrict you to transfer produce water on the property um i saw one operator said well then let's get into the definition of what produce water is what brackish water and what fresh water is and when they got them to put that in the contract they just diluted their produce water down so it met the definition of brackish and then just moved it across the property so, I mean, I guess there's ways around it, but but those are the those are the impediments that'll stop recycling. Is really these landowner issues. Uh, the last question I've got for you is: well, you talked about midstream a little bit. Um, I have been surprised that we have really not seen a lot of aggregation and consolidation in the midstream water market. Um, are you similarly surprised by that? Do you, or do you think that that's maybe coming and we're just a little bit you know, we're not there yet? 
what is what does the market look to you look like to you sort of at a macro scale across the board? Well, I think there's going to be more consolidation. I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen. I mean, there's been a few acquisitions there, uh, most of them on a smaller scale. But but I think that's, you know, the more they aggregate, the lower their unit cost should get because of the volume of water they have. Um, I, I think, you know, um, there's some some growing pains that some of these guys are seeing in terms of integrating their uh, their um, those assets into their system. Um and, but I think, you know, for the most part, you know, and, and I tell everybody, you know, I just told you what, 25 to 45 cents. When you talk to midstreams, you know, it's like 15 cents to 30 cents a barrel. And everybody says, well, how can they do it for so much cheaper? Um, and, and I say, you know, there's a lot of different reasons, but to me, it's always utilization. When you talk to an operator, their utilization is like 60, 70 percent because they're always planning on growth. They always expect there to be more, so they always have some stranded capacity there available from when they need it. Midstreams are saying, no, we want to optimize that. So they're they're wanting to get better than 90% utilization on those assets. And so because of the high utilization, they just get lower costs. And so I think you know that for that reason, they're going to be able to develop a lower cost model than an operator can, and they'll be able to develop bigger scale than an operator can individually. Uh, and I think as a result, I think that's where you're going to see the growth. But you're right. I'm surprised there hasn't been as much um, acquisitions going on. But, you know, with with Solaris going public and that access to that public money, um, you know, we'll see. Maybe that will change things. You know, I uh, it's, it's interesting you you bring that up because I, I read uh, through the prospectus and, and I read you know a bunch about that. I think it was last week. Um, and Mark, I don't know. Long story short. I read a lot of mumbo jumbo and they said a lot of ESG buzzwords, but the, the, the business case behind the bond security, I, I, yeah. I, I, call me a skeptic at the moment. I'll, I'll, yeah. I, I was going to say something more aggressive. I'll just say that. Call me a skeptic at the moment. I want to see that thing actually work in action. Um, I don't want to call them snake oil salesmen because I think Solaris does a fantastic job operationally. They've got an incredibly sharp management team. I think Amanda Brock is like one of the sharpest women I've ever met. Um, and so they clearly know what they're doing. But that that proposal, I, I'm nervous. Uh, let, let me say this. I'm nervous about that proposal potentially giving that you know that market a, a poor name because that first iteration out of the gate i don't know if you saw um oh who was it um i'm gonna blank on who it was but there was a company just a few a uh, few years ago that tried to securitize unproven undeveloped asset reserves so they would i forget who it was offhand yeah um, um I forget. They started with an R. I'm blanking on who it was, but uh, but they, you know they and so I see this as sort of the second iteration of that. That model got destroyed. Didn't work. Do you agree with my assessment of the celerity of that of sustainability link bond, or am I, or am I on an island here? Well, well, no, no. See, so yeah, I, I get what you're saying because I, I, I when you look at the whole sustainability thing, I mean, um, I, I kind of sit back and and as much as I'm pro reduce emissions. Uh, reduce cost, and, and I see those things as being there, there's an area where those things can be consistently done together. Um, some of the sustainability things, some of the things that people are doing, will you really ever see a return on investment in wind power and solar power? Will, will that really happen? And so, when you start to see sustainability based funding sources, I keep asking myself, let's see what the return on investments on those funds are. 
let's start to see whether those things, because they may, I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a shift in, in where they're investing those dollars and, and whether or not you know, they're getting the return on investment in some of these things. I, I think they're investing in them because they seem like the right thing to do um, and creating some of these, these, uh, these um, ESG based um, um, funding sources. But the question is, you know, are they sustainable <laughs> financially? And I'm not sure that we have that answer. And I, I, I tend to believe they're not sustainable financially. I think they're going to change. And then that that's, that's going to change that. But, but I, I guess, you know, my point was just the idea that they're going public at all. Um, we'll give them access to some funds and we'll see what the world's going to be. But I mean, my, my whole pet peeve, the one thing I can say as much as I, I'm a big fan of midstream, the area that I get a little bit um, sideways um, with them uh, is, is how they define ESG. Like I've seen them saying I went from fresh to brackish water and that's like a big ESG goal for us. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Brackish water is the next available water for all these poor communities that are in drought conditions. And when they get to a point saying, look, we're going to have to put a desalination plant. What's the available water we have to do? That's their brackish water source. And if you start to take that away, that's not an ESG principle. I'm sorry. That's just, you know, it's, it's better than taking the fresh water, granted, uh, but but taking that is their next available water. So if you're doing that and re not recycling your produced water, I mean, I, I don't call you an ESG champion. I, I think that's wrong. The other practice, and there's only a couple doing it, is I'm buying municipal wastewater and I'm using it for my frac water supply. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the world is looking at groundwater recharge and they're building recharge basins and recharging their groundwater with their municipal discharge water. And, and in areas where there's drought conditions, that's that's a practice that I think we'll see more of. But if you're buying it from them so they can't do that anymore, I don't know that you want to call that an ESG practice. Um, no, I think you're exactly right. Yeah. You see Pioneer out here in Midland. I mean, they're, they're tied into the municipal water out here and they're, I don't know what this, the capacity of that system is, but it's massive. And, and, and yeah, they're, they're they're utilizing that as opposed to you know, selling it out of market. So no, I think you're exactly right. Um, so we're, uh, I've got one last question. Actually, it's not really a question, just a comment. I don't know, uh, Mark, if you saw, but it looks like it came out, actually, I guess just right before the, we went live. So you probably didn't see, but uh, apparently Shell uh, entered into a definitive agreement with ConocoPhillips to sell all of their Permian Basin assets for $9.5 Had you seen that earlier today? I, I saw uh, a rumor on Seeking Alpha that said that, that they were – in the tail ends of negotiation um, doesn't surprise me because remember Royal Dutch Shell made some commitments uh, to settle a lawsuit in the UK where they were going to change their um, their carbon emissions significantly. And one of the one of the things that came up was selling those Permian assets would allow them to reduce their emissions significantly. I'm trying to find uh, if this article says uh, where that puts Conoco on uh, you know, on the docket in terms of acreage out in the Permian. I mean, they, you know, obviously they just picked up uh, Concho back in what was that in January, if I have my timeline right, something like that. Something um, like that. So it looks like Shell is uh, it, it has a yeah they've got 225,000 net acres with current production of about 175,000 barrels per day. You know that I mean that that's got to put Conoco. At the top, I'd imagine it doesn't say that, but uh, I mean, that, that's a, that's a huge deal. Where I was going with someone with that with water, but I totally spaced. Oh yeah, so so Conoco, I mean they they, um, they run their own water, right? 
Um, they have an agreement with Solaris. So Solaris does a lot of work for them. In fact, yeah. I, I saw thought I saw where somewhere where uh, ConocoPhillips may be a, a part owner of Solaris at this point as a result of some of the agreements, or at least have options yeah. to be. There, there's some relationship there. No, I think, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, that's actually, that sounds right. Um, yeah. So, so uh, I had, a, I had a better question, but it totally left my brain, but uh, let's go ahead and, and wrap it up, Mark. Um, I really appreciate the time. Um, again, one more time, uh, you know, that you, like you did on the front end, tell people where they can find you if they want to hear more about Hydrozonics or uh, learn more about what you got going on, where they can reach out to you. Sure. Uh, www.hydrozonics.com. Uh, and my email address for those that want to email me, M Patton, P-A-T-T-O-N, at Hydrozonics, H-Y-D-R-O-Z-O-N-I-X.com. And uh, thank, thank you very much, Ben. Absolutely, Mark. I appreciate the time. Any, any parting thoughts before we sign off here? No, it's just great being on. Uh, hope to do it again. I mean, so many topics, so much to discuss. Uh, I think we, we touched on a few, but there's just so many more. So anyway, uh, th- thank you for your time. Absolutely. Are you going to be presenting at the uh, at the PWS in February? Uh, not not sure yet. I haven't submitted anything yet. I might. Um, there's a there's a Permian Shale Water Management Conference in Houston this week on yeah. Wednesday and Thursday, and I'll be presenting there. And then um, not sure about uh, PWS. We we have before. You know, you have to submit an abstract, and uh, mm-hmm. and I probably will do that. Um, I think Steve Coffey's on the line, so he and I are talking about doing some work together and. Uh, and if we can get that done before um, the end of the year, we might be able to submit an abstract for that and, and maybe do a joint presentation. Awesome. Are you going to do the oil food? What is it? Oil food water connection, the, the, um, October like 15 in Houston? Very likely. I'm still looking at my schedule um, and th- there's just a lot going on. I mean, we, we're just starting a new 40,000 barrel a day recycle facility that we have to upgrade to 150,000 barrels a day before the end of the year. So um, we're, we're in the middle of that. We just started the, the operations kicked off on Friday. Actually, Saturday was our first day of operating out there. So we're, we're just getting that started. And uh, it just depends on how much that uh, takes away from uh, my time. But I, I, I think I'm going to go to that off the water connection. It's always a good event. All the midstreams are always very well, uh, uh, you know, the, they're, they they fill up the room and almost almost all of them show up to that event no that's exactly right well hey it sounds like we're gonna have to get you on sometime uh, maybe uh after the first of the year get an update on that project that sounds fantastic and uh, best of luck with that yeah great thank you appreciate all it right. thanks appreciate ben. It, Mark. thank you all right and that is a wrap i am your host ben samuels this has been another episode of coffee and liquidity appreciate the support appreciate you guys showing up go ahead and check out alderonventures.com for more information about what we've got going on and future episode releases. Thanks, guys.